seems possible that we've come through 12 of the lectures, and now this, the 13th, and the last of this module. And I want to express again my deep gratitude to you and to the Lord for you and the blessed time that we've had together uh, in these hours of wrestling with this very vital question of what constitutes a biblical and an orderly call of a man of God to the pastoral office. <clears throat> I remind you that I suggested and asserted that the answer to that question falls into four major categories expressed in their irreducible substance by the words aspiration, qualification, confirmation, and recognition. And we've considered the first of these four, first three of these four, in their fuller verbal construction. And now, in this final lecture, we take up number four, recognition. And in its fuller form, I've expressed it this way. If one is to be assured that he is indeed a gift of Christ to his church, then there must be a providential opportunity and proper ecclesiastical recognition for the office and work of a specific pastoral charge. And I want to say at the outset, realizing that sitting with us, and no doubt in the wider usefulness of these lectures, will be those of diverse ecclesiastical persuasions and associations, that this is not a peculiarly independent perspective when one reads the thinking and the convictions and the passionate concerns of a very doughty Presbyterian such as Breckenridge, Thornwell, and others, then indeed this is a matter wider than any one particular ecclesiastical tradition. The necessity of a providential opportunity and proper ecclesiastical recognition for the office and work of a specific pastoral charge. When I first put these lectures together a number of years ago, I remember wrestling with the question as to whether or not this fourth category of concern was really a subset under the third, the generic being recognition and then its subsets being by the church of one's association and then a specific church to which one was called and in which one was recognized as a gift of Christ. But I do believe it is a distinct category and is not a, a category without a real distinction. And so uh, this will explain to you why I am treating it under this separate heading. And we might look into the Old Testament for some broad principles and precedents uh, we find men who were clearly marked out by God for a specific function in the will of God, and in some cases it was years before they came into the realization of that particular office and function for which they were marked out by God. David's anointing by Samuel and the years that awaited until he became king over all Israel is certainly an example of this, and then when we come to the New Testament, we find even the Apostle Paul, who in conjunction with his call into grace on the Damascus Road, was clearly called to the apostolic office and was given clear direction that the sphere of his labor would be one of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet it was a number of years before we come into Acts 13, at which time the Spirit of God makes plain that it was God's time for Paul, in conjunction with his companion Barnabas, to go forth and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So at least we see some principles and some precedents, but I want to, as I did in the previous hour, state an axiom with respect to this aspect of our concern and then break it down into its various elements for a few minutes, and then seek to discover the biblical principles, precepts, and precedents which frame and give birth to this axiom. And the axiom is this. 
the crowning validation of a man's call to the pastoral office is the recognition of a specific congregation judging and acting by the rule of Christ leading to his formal ordination and installation to that office. A specific congregation must see in a man a gift of Christ and by an act of suffrage and a suffrage that comes from within that congregation recognizes this man. He is not imposed upon them from without. And you know enough of church history to know that men have literally spilt blood over this issue. That Christ does not impose spiritual guides upon a flock of Christ from without. But that that flock of Christ from within recognizes and receives with gratitude Christ's gift to them. However, if this is to be a valid call, then it must be a congregation that thinks and acts by the rule of Christ as contained in the word of Christ. They go about whatever the specific process may be in a prayerful disposition. It is while those five teachers and prophets are ministering to the Lord and fasting that God speaks his more definitive word concerning Paul and Barnabas going forth to that mission among the Gentiles. So it must be a church acting in conscious dependence upon Christ and his spirit, a church submissive to the word of Christ not being pressured by its ecclesiastical tradition or by sentiment or by the leading uh, men and women in the church who may have a mouthy influence or a financial influence, but a congregation that by and large is submissive to the Word of God and then by some clear external act by which the church expresses its acknowledgement of Christ's gift and its will, its deliberate, volitional, cheerful reception of and submission to that gift of Christ. A man may be assured then that indeed his calling that began perhaps with some very wispy pressures in his spirit, could it be that God would have me invest my life in pastoral labors, it now comes to its crowning validation when over the process of those years and whatever path by which God has brought a man in fulfilling the elementary biblical requirements, he now can have this assurance, as much assurance as a man can have short of direct revelation that Jesus Christ himself has endowed me with the necessary gifts and graces to serve in the pastoral office and now a flock of Christ, prayerful and submissive to the Word, judging by the standard of the Word, sees in me Christ's gift and receives me as such. So that's the axiom and the thoughts that I've tried to squeeze into the words of the axiom now we come to consider the biblical principles, precepts, and precedents that frame that axiom. Now let me say at the outset, I cannot commend too highly the section in Owen, volume 16, pages 51 to 74, for a thorough and convincing biblical and historical defense of the principles in that axiom. And as I street read sections of it in the earlier hours of this morning to make sure that the recommendation I gave for this some years ago when I originally wrote these lectures was still my evaluation. And as I speed read and remembered as I looked back at the sections particularly that I had underlined, that I know of no place in all of the books in my library that gives a more accurate, distilled, and yet comprehensive statement of these principles relative to a man's call being finally and thoroughly validated by the call of a specific gospel church thinking and acting 
by the rule of Scripture. So all I can hope to do in the time allotted to me in this last lecture is to capture some of the major biblical materials that Owen includes and amplifies far more fulsomely than I will be able to do in this lecture. We think of Acts chapter 1 with regard to the whole matter of filling up that hole in the apostolate left by the apostasy and the uh, defection from the faith and suicide of that wretched man who was named among the twelve, Judas Iscariot. And it's interesting that even in that situation, though there are elements that are uh, peculiar to this matter of seeking out an apostle, there was a sense of the body that is there gathered acting and being involved. And in those days, Acts 1.15, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren and said, and there was a multitude of persons gathered together, about 120. A little bit of a throwaway and an aside. In our day, no one would describe 120 as a multitude, so if you're ministering to a relatively small congregation, God might describe it as a multitude. Brethren, it was needful that the scripture should be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was guide to them that took Jesus. What precipitates this speaking out of Peter? It's the pressure of scripture upon the present situation with regard to this lack in the apostolate. Brethren, it was needful that the scripture should be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke for he was numbered among us, received his portion in this ministry, this man obtained a field, etc. It became known to all the dwellers of the men therefore, verse 21, here's the standard, of the men therefore that have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day he was received up from us, of these must one become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they, who's the they? I think contextually the they is the 120 by some process came to a consensus. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. They prayed. They had the objective standard articulated by Peter, now they pray, and they pray because of this reality. You, Lord, know the hearts. We see the objective, external standards, and in these two men they are amply met. But, Lord, we don't know the heart. Oh, God, out of your knowledge of what these men really are, you make plain the one whom you have chosen, the one whom you have furnished for this unique office of a possible apostle to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas fell away that he might go to his own place and then we'll not get into again the moot discussion was it right for them to cast lots was that tempting God I'm not even going to address it you want to know what my conviction is I don't have one All right, I'm agnostic but it would appear that God smiled upon the entire process, but surely there are some principles embedded in this passage that point to this whole concept that even here there was involvement of the 120 with respect to this orderly recognition of God's gift to fill up this lack in the apostleship. And then when we turn to the scriptures, Excuse me. We find the Acts 6 passage, again, has some precedence for us. There is this murmuring of the Grecian Jews against the uh, Hebrews, the Hellenists, because at least the perception that they are being neglected in the daily ministration to the widows. And so the apostles gather the multitude together, and they say, all right, one thing is clear. It's not pleasing, it's not spiritually, aesthetically right 
for us to leave our distinctive ministry and do something that is so noble for pure religion and undefiled is to care for widows, but it's not seemly for us to do a noble thing at the expense of a more noble thing to which we are called. It's not fit that we should forsake the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, in our infinite pool of knowledge, we will appoint seven men. No. Look out, therefore, brethren, from among you, seven men of good report, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. We as apostles will appoint, we will confer a sphere of spiritual responsibility and possibly the incipient emergence of the office of deacon, possibly, I'm not dogmatic on it, we will continue steadfastly in prayer and in the ministry, the deaconing of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now how does the chapter begin? In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, you get a thousand Jews with a bunch of fussing women all agreeing on something. This is one of the most marvelous indications of a spirit-filled church. The same, you didn't have anybody say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I think I got a better idea. You've had it in your congregational meetings. I have sat sometimes when Mr. Davies has been uh, setting something before the congregation uh, as an expression of a, a diaconal concern uh, that we as elders have had our input, but it's primarily a diaconal issue and uh, the thing is laid out, the logic for it, the rationale for it, and then someone in the congregation will ask the question, which if that question had not been asked before the thing ever came into the deacon's court, they'd be a bunch of incompetent little boys. And you sit there and you bunch of it, and you just sigh. <laughs> We've had those situations. Well, apparently there was none of that here, so that's why I guess I'm more sensitive to pick this up. Look out among you, brethren. This saying pleases the multitude, and they chose. The multitude is involved in seeing. Here's the standard, seven men with these qualifications, and being a charismatic church, indwelled by the Spirit, with the Spirit's ministry of wisdom and discernment and a heart submissive to the divine directive coming through the apostles. They select the seven whom they set before the apostles for their final validation of their choice. They prayed, they laid their hands on them in order to make this visible demonstration that they indeed concurred in this choice, that laying on of the hands was not, to my knowledge, no indication it was conferring any special grace, but in conjunction with the laying on of the hands, no doubt with prayer, that these men would be equipped to fulfill their function, and the subsequent context indicates that God's smile was upon them. So here we have some precedents that begin to give us the stuff concerning this whole idea of the congregation's activity in the recognition of men for specific office and function within and on behalf of the church. Then in Acts 14 and verse 23, Acts 14 and verse 23, the apostle and his companions begin at verse 19, there came hither Jews from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, the Lord raised him up, verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch, back into some of the very places where they were so severely mistreated, doing what? Confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed for them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. And I commend Owen's argument on the use of kairotoneo, that Greek verb, as indicative of common congregational suffrage. I think Owen has the most 
compelling philological treatment of the use of that verb and with the analogy of scripture. But the fundamental issue is this, that there was, with respect to the men who were placed in that office, an obvious recognition by the church and the recognition by the man, the men themselves, that they were indeed set apart to this task, but it was from within the churches themselves. Paul did not have a college of pre-approved, pre-hands-laid-on elders and deposits them in the church. He has the right as an apostle to do that with Timothy and Titus. That's why I say their office and function is difficult to identify precisely. Paul can say, Timothy, I left you at Ephesus to charge men not to teach a different doctrine. He can say to Titus, I've sent you there to Crete that you might fill up what is lacking, ordain elders in every city as I gave you charge. But in this situation, it's within the churches themselves. They appointed them elders in every church. And the clear assumption of the text is that those elders appointed for the church were appointed as they rose up from within the church. And here I want to read just one of the sections from John Owen, page 54 and 55. The call of persons under the pastoral office is an act and duty of the church. It is not an act of the political magistrate, not of the pope, not of any single prelate, but of the whole church unto whom the Lord Christ has committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And indeed, although there be great differences about the nature and manner of the call of men to this office, yet none who understands aught of these things can deny, but that it is an act and duty of the church, which the church alone is empowered by Christ to put forth and exert. This will be more fully, this will more fully appear in the consideration of the nature and manner of this call of men unto the pastoral office and the actings of the church therein. The call of persons under the pastoral office of the church consists of two parts. First, election. Secondly, ordination, as it is commonly called, or sacred separation by fasting and prayer. As unto the former, that is, election, four things must be inquired into what is previous unto it, or preparatory for it, that is, the church elected by its suffrage, recognizing a man as a gift of Christ. Secondly, wherein does it consist? Thirdly, its necessity or the demonstration of its truth and institution. Fourthly, what influence it has in the communication of pastoral office power unto a pastor so chosen. And then he amplifies those four heads and he comes back like a one-note Charlie on this matter of gifts. What is previous unto it? Number one, by an evidence given of the qualifications in him before mentioned at the bottom of page 54. The church is not to call or choose anyone to office who is not known unto them of whose frame of spirit and walking they have not had some experience, not a novice or one lately come unto them. What would Owen think of the man coming, preaching two trial sermons, having two meetings with the elders or the session, and extending a call? Owen would throw up his hands and say, I can't believe it. I can't believe it that a people would submit themselves to the spiritual guidance and oversight and shepherding of a man so little known. Owen would say horrors. He must be one who by his ways and walking has obtained a good report, even among them that are without, so far as he is known, unless they be enemies of scoffers, one that hath in some good measure evidenced his faith love and obedience unto Jesus Christ in the church. This is the chief trust that the Lord Christ has committed unto his churches. And if they are negligent therein, or if they at all, or if it all adventures, or if at all adventures they will impose 
an officer in his house upon them without satisfaction of his meekness upon due inquiry, it is a great dishonor unto him and provocation of him. Herein principally are churches made the overseers of their own purity and edification. How true that is. Churches are made the overseers of their own purity and edification with respect to how careful or careless they are in the recognition of a man to be one of their shepherds. To deny them, that is, the members of the church, an ability of a right judgment herein, or a liberty for the use and exercise of it, is error and tyranny. But that flock which Christ purchased and purified with his own blood is thought by some to be little better than a herd of brute beasts. Where there is a defect of this personal knowledge from want of opportunity, it may be supplied by testimonies of unquestionable authority. When you say you may not have the opportunity for months or years of exposure, however, you want to get the testimony of those who are discerning and have had that exposure. There was a practice among the churches, you remember, of letters of commendation, not only for ordinary believers, but apparently for itinerant ministers. So Paul says, do we need letters of commendation as do others? The assumption is some do need it, and they ought to be used. And so Owen is recognizing the fact that a given church may be able to acquire an understanding and knowledge of a man as to gifts and graces in some other way other than a lengthy personal exposure. Then he goes on, number two, that there must be a trial of his gifts for edification. And surely, brethren, too well-preached sermon doth not a competent pastor be. I can remember some young men, they are what I call four sermon wonders. The first time they preached, you'd think that God had raised up Whitfield Spurgeon and a little bit of Edwards and rolled them all up into one and there he was. And the people said, ah. the second time, maybe a third time, but after the fourth time, not much there. Not much there. And so this practice of a few trial sermons without some other knowledge is dangerous business. Not only dangerous business to the church, but to the man himself. He may have a totally distorted view of who he is and how well he is or is not suited to be a gift of Christ to the church until there is some sufficient interaction for the church to make a valid judgment about his gifts and his graces. And so we could go on and quote much more from Owen, but I trust most of you have the complete works of Owen and that you will carefully read Volume 16, pages 51 to 74. Then I rest the case again for this concept that the crowning validation comes when there is a recognition by a specific congregation. Paul gathers the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And what does he say to them? After he reviews the manner of his own labors among them from the first day, he set his foot in their midst. He then charges them in Acts 20, 28 and says this, Take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock, that flock purchased by the blood of God, Take heed to that flock in the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's made you overseers in that flock. You're not made an overseer generically to every flock, but you are made an overseer specifically to the flock at Ephesus. You are overseers in that particular flock. And you have the same emphasis when Paul gives direction to Titus. He is told that he is sent to Crete for this purpose. I left you, or left in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. Where there is an assembly of God's people in a given city, 
there, in that context, elders are to be appointed. Now, this has some very crucial implications. And I was struck the first time I came across that article by Breckenridge, in which it became very, very evident that he was greatly disturbed that at his time, apparently, there were a lot of reverends floating around in the Southern Presbyterian Church who were not shepherds of specific flocks of God. And this greatly disturbed him. And he wrote as follows, There is very great difficulty in proving that any ordinary office bearer in the Church of Christ can be lawfully or even validly ordained at all without he be ordained to a determinate office and the only ground upon which the ordination of evangelists can be justified in any deals. Apparently, there was a system where a man that was not called to a specific church but passed some elementary test of competence was named an evangelist so that he could be recognized as an officially recognized minister. But so we got all these evangelists floating around that are undermining the biblical concept of what it is to be a shepherd recognized by a specific congregation. About six lines down at the top of 23 in that footnote. As to the validity of ordination to the ordinary office of bishop, pastor, or minister of the word, without designation to any particular church, consider, one, that the thing is utterly unwarranted by precept or example in the word of God, and it is contrary to the constant practice of apostles. And then he cites four of these, three or four of the texts we've looked at. It was absolutely forbidden in the ancient church, and then he cites the historical precedent, and then point number four, every term, bishop, pastor, elder, by which the ordained person is designated is a relative term. And therefore, to use them of one who has no church, people, or flock implies, as John Owen well notes, as a real contradiction and impossibility, as to make him a father who has no child, or him a husband who has no wife. And so I say, this is not just a persuasion of people of independent ecclesiology. It's a matter of whether or not the scripture, in its total witness, allows us to think in a Romish sense. Once a reverend, always a reverend. I can't help but be greatly disturbed when I hear of someone who is described as minister of such and such a church, and he's not even been in the country where that church exists, let alone have a pastoral charge for years and years. But somehow, because at one time, in one place, a congregation recognized him as a pastor, he is forever a pastor. No. What we have done here, when we began after reconstituting, and both Mr. Dixon and I were recognized as gifts of Christ to the church, for 30 years, Don Dixon served with me in the eldership. No man of great discretion and wisdom, the model of what I would call a lay elder, as that term is often used. And in the providence of God, he's somewhat older than I, and he had serious health problems, and for a number of reasons, he was persuaded he could no longer do the work of a pastor. And so he relinquished his office. And the day he relinquished his office, out of respect for him person and his age, people referred to him as Mr. Dixon. But the name pastor was dropped the day he relinquished the office because he was no longer pastor. There were no longer a flock of sheep for whom he had God-given, specific, solemn responsibilities. And he's been an ideal church member. Ministering one-on-one, -on -one, as a brother to needy brothers and sisters. He's never caused us a millisecond of a headache if ever we need to tap in to the pool of his wisdom and his knowledge of the life of this church from its inception. He's more than willing uh, to sit down with us, to, uh, to let us pick his brain, to get his insights, but he has relinquished the office before God and in his spirit and as I say, he's not caused us a moment of trouble. 
So it has implications, brethren, if indeed this axiom is true, that the crowning validation of a man's call is a specific congregation judging and acting by the rule of Christ leading to his formal ordination and installation in that office, then we must not think in terms of the perpetuation of the office apart from a specific congregation. Shepherds are shepherds to specific flocks of God. And then another implication is that a man who has the internal Paul aspires to the office, has been judged by others as well as his own conscience that he has the requisite graces required of God, the requisite gifts, and that has been validated by the church, by wise, discerning men. He must wait upon God for the open door for this crowning and final validation of his call. And there's a wonderful example of this in the history of John Newton, the converted slave trader. And he was asked by someone about this whole matter of call to the ministry. How could he know whether or not God was calling him? And in answering this man, he set before him three principles. Number three was this. That which finally evidences a proper call. I love the terminology. That which finally evidences a proper call is a corresponding opening in providence by a gradual train of circumstances pointing out the means, the time, the place of actually entering upon the work. And till this coincidence arrives, you must not expect to be always clear from hesitation in your own mind. The principal caution on this heading is not to be too hasty in catching at first appearances. If it be the Lord's will to bring you into his ministry, he has already appointed your place and service. And though you know it not at present, you shall at a proper time. If you had the talents of an angel, you could do no good with them till his hour is come, until he leads you to the people whom he has determined to bless by your means. It's very difficult to restrain ourselves within the bounds of prudence here when our seal is formed, a sense of the love of Christ upon our hearts and a tender compassion for poor sinners is ready to prompt us to break out too soon. But then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, He that believes shall not make haste. I was about five years under this constraint. Sometimes I thought I must preach, though it was in the streets. I listened to everything that seemed plausible and to many things that were not so. But the Lord graciously and as it were insensibly hedged up my way with thorns. Otherwise... If I had been left to my own spirit, I should have put it quite out of my power to have been brought into such a sphere of usefulness as he, in his good time, has been pleased to lead me to. And I can now see clearly that at the time I would have first gone out, though my intention was, I hope, good in the main, yet I overrated myself and had not that spiritual judgment and experience which are requisite for so great a service. You hear some echoes from an earlier lecture? <laughs> Maturation of Christian experience, John Newton says, I lacked that dimension and didn't know it. So God shut up doors of opportunity while he was working on me to develop that essential requirement of an effective pastor. I wish you therefore to take time if you have desire to enter the established church, that's the Church of England, endeavor to keep your zeal within moderate bounds and avoid everything that might unnecessarily clog your admission with difficulties. I would not have you hide your profession or to be backward to speak for God, but avoid what looks like preaching and be content with being a learner in the school of Christ for some years. The delay will not be lost time. You will be so much the more acquainted with the gospel, with your own heart, and with human nature. 
The last is a necessary branch of a minister's knowledge and can only be acquired by comparing what passes within us and around us with what we read in the Word of God. Some things just take time. And the maturation essential that we may not be aware we need sometimes is God's purpose in that delay. And if I may, I want to intrude with a little bit of personal testimony here as well. When, after five years, four and a half years, Baroness came near my wife was a child, I knew that I could not be traipsing her around the country in this itinerant ministry that I was involved in. And during those years of the itinerant ministry, I saw more and more of how far evangelical churches were from the norms of Scripture and everything from qualifications for church officers to uh, the nature of worship, so many things. And more and more, a vision was being born in my heart of what the church could be and what it ought to be with the blessing of God. And when I would share it with experienced pastors, and all of this was in mainline evangelical churches, they would treat me like a Joseph with his naughty dreams. They'd all complain when I'd try to get together with them and establish prayer times with them. And believe it or not, some men, I couldn't even get them when I was in their church to minister to their people, to set aside time to pray with me for their people as I was among them ministering. But when those who did meet me began to open their hearts, often they would complain, oh, brother, my deacons meetings. And most of those churches just had the traditional Baptist or independent structure of one pastor and then deacons who functioned more or less, some of them like elders, some like deacons. And they would complain again, oh, brother, what a headache. If you ever get the pastor, I tell you, you're going to find out, brother, your biggest headaches will come from your deacons. Biggest headaches will come from your board members. Biggest headaches will come from your elders. I was in some Presbyterian churches. And then when I went to the scriptures, I said, Lord, this shouldn't be. If men meet that standard, that ought to be the most blessed time when men who are blameless, exemplary in domestic piety, men who are not strikers and brawlers, not self-willed, men who are the richest deposit of grace to gather, Lord, something's not right. And when I would try to share that with these men, they'd look at me cynically and say, you'll find out. You'll find out. Nobody encouraged me to say, brother, I've inherited a mess. I haven't had the guts to deal with the mess, but the Lord bless you. May he put you in a situation where what you see in your Bible, which is obviously in your Bible, you'll see in your experience. I can't remember a man that encouraged me. I can't remember him. So this burden began to deepen. Lord, if I'm a naughty, idealistic dreamer, wake me up. I was 28 years old at the time. I said, I want to go through life an idealistic dreamer, naive dreamer. Then I had a choice. One was to send out a letter and make it known that I was, quote, looking for a church. Rightly or wrongly, I couldn't do it. You know why? I felt I'd be like a prostitute standing on the corner saying, here's my body if you want it. I said, God, if you have a people, you will sovereignly bring them to those people. And I know you've done it. I don't want to be where you have not deposited me. And I'm not going to force my way into a pastoral situation because I've got this burden. I've had sufficient validation that I've been called to preach and manifested some gifts. I had a student pastorate where I was able to have some provenness of ability to minister to people in a white trash section, as it was called, way in the deep south, in the suburbs of Augusta, Georgia, and other opportunities. And so I began to plead with God, Oh, Lord, open the door. Well, God did. And I'll share this little bit of personal testimony as we bring this to a close, because it's, it's been used of God again and again. In my itinerant ministry, I had preached for a man out in Wheaton, Illinois, who had subsequently come all the way out to Chester, New Jersey here to plant a church. And I kept up contact with him. Well, in planting that church, the little group had bought a Catholic retreat center that was up for sale. And it had a home adequate for its family with a little chapel. And then it had a barn because this retreat center used to do some of its own farming. 
And in that barn downstairs, there was a huge area about oh, 15 by 15 or 20 where they kept the bulls. It was a real bullpen, not the one where the pitcher warms up at Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium. <coughs> and on the floor of that bullpen was about an inch of an inch and a half of dry bulldog. And they wanted to turn that barn into a youth center, and they wanted to put the bathrooms down where the bullpen was. So he knew of my situation in the itinerant ministry, and he said, Al, I understand you've got some time between meetings. We need to have somebody come, reactivate that dung, scrape it out. He said, if you're willing to do it, we'll pay you $15 a day. That's 15 bucks a day back in 1962. That's good money. I said, you bet your boots. Because at the time, I would do anything that wasn't sinful to earn money to pay the rent. Uh, I had no support from anybody. I had no church overseeing me. I was in a pathetically unideal ecclesiastical situation. Not willfully. I was ignorant, and God deals with us where we are. So it was while I was scraping the stuff out of the bullpen, and you know what they call it. That he said to me, my home church up in Colgate, New Jersey, is without a pastor. And sometimes they can't get a pulpit supply. You're staying with me for two weeks. You're going to be here over Lord's Day. If they need a preacher for Sunday, would you be willing to go? I said, sure. So, come Sunday or Saturday, and I'm praying, Lord, what shall I preach? When he told me the history, they'd had a man for eight years. They had a big fuss. He left. Some of the church split. Then another man came in. He only lasted 11 months. I said, oh boy, this is one of those typical churches like I've been preaching in for the past four and a half years. And then I said, the golden rule is, as you would that others do unto you, even so do ye also unto them. And I said to myself, if I were the one God was going to bring to pastor these people, what would I hope some wacky evangelist would say to them on one Sunday to make his job easier? I said, okay, what I would hope he did was to come in, or I hope he had done, and preach in the morning on what is a real Christian, because they probably don't have a clue. they got this carnal Christian stuff, dividing uh, lordship from saviorhood, and all the rest. So I went in with both fingers on the trigger, blazing away in the morning. What is a real Christian? Out of Luke 14, 25 to 33. And I said, what would I preach in the evening? And in the afternoon, I put together a topical message on the subject why should Christ give you a pastor? <laughs> and I went after him. Hip and fine. You want somebody to come in here and just run the show the way it's been for donkey's years? And you want a man of God who preach the word to you and get into your conscience? And I just went after him. Figured the least they can do is withhold my honorarium. <laughs> <laughs> well, after I'm preaching, they had an emergency board meeting. And in the alliance set up, they have a board made of the elders and deacons. And they went off. And I said, oh boy. <laughs> going over there to decide, don't give this guy a shekel. <laughs> and out of that came one of the men who said, uh, we'd like to talk to you. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, what they wanted to talk to me about, they said, you said things today we've never heard before. Mm -hmm. But something in our hearts in the light of the messes we've been through, where we've conducted ourselves in such an ungracious, unchristian way, could it be that the problem is just as deep as what you preach today? Would you come for a series of meetings? And that's how it all began. I've been here 44 years. Amen. So it all began. What am I saying that for? In my own experience, brother, this principle has been so fundamentally validated that for me to move away from the scriptures. And from that validation, I don't know where I'd go if I moved away from those things. So I urge you, who are this far in this whole pipeline of believing that maybe God's hand is upon you, don't force your way into a situation that seems to be desirable because you say, I simply can't hold back any longer. But wait for God's appointment because... Either he's going to put you in a place where you'll be commissioned as a church planter with a view to becoming its first pastor or one that's already established. And God knows those sheep. Christ knows them by name. 
And he is preparing and suiting you to shepherd that particular flock that he's purchased with his own blood. So may God grant that in thinking through this matter, we will be determined that we will not intrude into that office, but that there will be indeed those four categories of requisite gifts, graces, providential and ecclesiastical dealings with us, that as we face the trials and the pressures and the discouragements, we'll be able to say, Oh Lord Jesus, I didn't put myself here. You put me here. This is not a demand upon my frail humanity, but a demand upon your grace. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for Saul, how should we not with him also freely give us all things? Let's pray. Holy Father, we would gather up all the strands of the things we've thought and felt in these days together and thank you from the depths of our hearts for answering our prayers and doing exceeding abundantly above what we could have asked or thought. Thank you for each of these men whom you've gathered for these hours. Thank you not only for the sense of your help and presence as we have together wrestled with this crucial question, but we thank you for the sense of your nearness as we've sat at the tables and as we've engaged one another in conversation, informally. Oh Lord, you have been good to us. We bless and praise you and ask for your continued blessing upon each one of these men. We pray for those who will subsequently listen and view the lectures, that your blessing would rest upon them as well in whatever setting they are exposed to these things. We look to you, our Father, for your continued blessing upon us all, and may not a one of us, O oh God, may not a one of us become wreckage along the road, but may we persevere by your grace and be found at last standing before our Lord Jesus and hearing the words, well done, good, and faithful son. We ask in his name and to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. Amen. Amen.